This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and in the cave with me tonight we have Cerise Howard. Hello. Hello Cerise and Emma Westwood. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Um, tonight we will be looking at Jonah Hill's directorial debut, mid-90s, and we are also going to be looking at uh, director Guy Madden's experimental homage to Hitchcock with The Green Fog, which I always want to call The Green Frog. <laughs> the Green Frog. <laughs> always, but it's The Green Fog. Um, I don't believe that the last few the weeks... The psychology behind that, I don't know, I know what I that is. I just think of Kermit every time. Um, the last few weeks we've started the show on a sombre note with greats that have passed away, but I don't believe that we have... Any, any this week, which is good. I'm sure there is someone, um, and and we're probably going to be hit on our social media now, telling us there is someone. That's all right. But, Let us um, know. Just tell by us. By the end of the show, maybe someone. By the end of our our last show that Cerise was on, Scott Walker had died by yes, the end, which that's was true. Yeah. really terrible. But um, let's not hope that that's uh, a premonition, shall we say? We can have a corrections <laughs> corner or something we each week. <laughs> Um, But first, continuing on with our retrospective that we started last week and we talked about the misfits, um, we're going to look at the wonderful world of Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 noir classic Vertigo. Um, This has frequently been cited, I guess, sort of more recently as the best film that's ever been made, surpassing Citizen Kane. It is a beautiful Technicolor film noir and it was groundbreaking in many, many ways. So Jimmy Stewart plays John Scotty Ferguson, who has retired from the police force after an accident that leaves him with a fear of heights and a titular affliction of vertigo. An old acquaintance of Scotty's hires him as a private eye to follow his wife, Madeline, who's played by Kim Novak, to find out why she's acting so strangely. And it is very much worth mentioning that Vertigo is our opening music here on Plato's Plato's Cave. Um, So it's the title track from the film, which has been composed by the incredible Bernard Herrmann, who frequently collaborated with Hitchcock along with other greats like he is you know a renowned composer he's amazing so it i find it really difficult when we have to i remember last year we talked about 2001 a space odyssey and i find it hard to talk about these films that are you know so, so important important um so i'm gonna throw it to you Emma, <laughs> to kick it off thanks than sally me. Yeah, larger th- larger than life cinema. Um, I love that this film has been called the greatest film of all time. But I think it was Sight and Sound that actually decided yeah, it that it, for them, was the best film of all time, which is saying something. Usually, it's Citizen Kane. I think that makes it onto all those lists. Uh, what I like about this film being called uh, the the best film of all time is that it's really an inherently perverse and sleazy film. There's something really amazingly twisted about Vertigo. Uh, and I think Alfred Hitchcock uh, is so interesting when he delves into perversions. I mean, something like Marnie, which is not a... Well, it's his mid-career film, maybe not as big as something like Rear Window or, you know, The Birds or something like that, but starring Tippi Hedren is another kind of perverse film. What year was Marnie? 
do we, oh, off the top of your head? 60s. Think, yep, it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So it was after It was after this. Mm-hmm. Um, the time when he was terrorising Tippy Hedren as his ice blonde. <laughs> uh, but also something like, well, obviously Psycho is an incredibly, you know, perverse film, but there's something that's just so in the fabric of this film that's so creepy and... Um, Jimmy Stewart was cast, or James Stewart, was cast a lot by Alfred Hitchcock and I think Hitchcock used him particularly well because he saw him as representing the everyman Mm -hmm. and this idea that, you know, people felt comforted by him on screen. He was, you know, he was kind of like, who's that guy that they put in who's in Guardians of the Galaxy? Chris Pratt. He's kind of like now what they He's, use Chris Pratt as. I, I, can't, I haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, Tom Hanks would be probably or closer. Tom, mm. No, Tom Hanks, yes. Okay. I would say Tom Hanks would, yeah, you're right, would be closer. But they use, I feel they use Chris Pratt in a similar way. Okay. But... Um, Yes, this idea that he's he's the everyman. So to create this character that, for all intents and purposes, he's um, he's he's kind of a bit of a sociopath, really, mm. when it comes down to it. And he's he's also presented at the start. You know, there's a lot of jocularity him with his his friend Midge, who's very desexualized, even giving her the name. Midge. Their friendship is really interesting in this film. Like going back and revisiting this, that was the one thing that I found very interesting. Great, is looking at it? the dynamics between uh, Scotty and Midge because she's obvious she's in love with him. Mm. Barbara Belgetti's plays that role. Was yes. she in Dallas? She was in something like that. Was oh, I, um, I, I'll, I'll try and find this out when you're talking, but I think it was Dallas or something like that. But she's um, it's. So it, when it starts, it's if it feels very asexual this film, and then it becomes really heavily sexualized, sensualized as soon as you bring um, Kim Novak in as this this character that he's meant to um, follow. And Kim Novak, I think, is more more than a, a beautiful woman. She is just so sensual. I mean, there's something mm. about her and her screen presence that is just amazing. And the scene where he sees her for the first time is just incredible Technicolor brilliance. Now, you've got to remember that Hitchcock, after this film, went back to black black and white. He did Psycho in black and white. Mm. So it's very pointed that this film was in colour. So what came after this? Was it North by North, Northwest and then Straight Psycho? after. Psycho was 60, wasn't it? That Psycho, sounds about right. Yeah, and yeah. this is 58, 58, 59. So I think North by Northwest. Uh, we'll have to look, sure. look it up. We'll look it up. We'll look it up. But someone's going to be angry. Someone's, <laughs> someone's going to be angry. Someone's calling us. Someone's <laughs> about this already. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the the... So the Technicolor is really, really important in this film and it even gives a massive Technicolor credit right in the opening credits to, to the person who was responsible for supervising that. And the scene where he sees her that this, for the first time when he's expected to follow her is in a red, a brilliant red dining room and she's wearing this incredible dress. Um 
that I believe is green. It has greens and blacks yeah, on it. Yeah, it's green. And it's also from the amazing Edith Head. Head. Yeah. Edith yeah. Head is just, oh, my God. And it was on display in the Bendigo Art Gallery. Yes, it? The Not year, yep. Last year, early it was last year, year at yeah, the Edith Head year. exhibition. Yep. Mm. Yep. It was last year. It's, it's, it's one of those moments where a co- the costume just, you, you, you remember the costume. You remember the colour. You remember these incredible profile shots of her. I love mm. the way that he he captures her in profile in almost still profile. Um, it's something so distinct about. I, I love costume in cinema, and I love Technicolor. Like I am such a sucker for Technicolor, and that particular scene where we first are introduced to Kim Novak is just so incredibly breathtaking for those two elements combined. Mm. Like it's amazing. Absolutely. This is a really obsessive film. It's why it's, it feels so perverse. There's a whole 15-minute-long sequence of no dialogue in which Scotty stalks... I love that scene. Madeline. Mm. That sequence. Yeah. <laughs> He's behind the wheel of his car a lot of the time, just going through those streets of San Francisco through various... Uh, it's a good name for a TV series, yeah. series. Yeah, if only someone would think of that about 10 years later. <laughs> it's really super creepy. Um, and... and uh, there are a lot of enigmas that remain with this film. It was built very much into its narrative fabric. The opening sequence in which Scotty, uh, for, for which Scotty is, um, uh, which he gets his vertigo from, there's a, a, a rooftop chase where we don't actually quite know how that plays out. We just know. I mean, he's dangling from a roof when we cut away. Scotty has, um, somehow he's still alive and he has a fear of, Heights or of falling, perhaps more accurately, something I can relate to. That sort of thing gives me the heebie-jeebies in a big way. Mm-hmm. There's, there are all sorts of. Um, uh, well, this film's legacy is vast, but just that that um, the way the vertigo is shown within that bell tower. We've got that um, concurrent zoom and uh, now what's the what's the terminology? Yeah, yeah. tracking, and zooming the, the in contrary zoom. motion. Yeah, which, which was the first time this was ever used in cinema. Yeah. And, and which then Spielberg used to such great um, effect in Jaws. Yes. Yeah. And, and yes. You know, it's been used a lot of times since, mm. but it's still super potent. It still you know, really does communicate quite um, viscerally that, that feeling of, of vertigo, of suddenly losing your bearings and feeling very discombobulated and feeling the world beneath your foot, feet, feeling very unstable. But uh, the, the obsessiveness of this film... Um, Gosh, it's influenced so many filmmakers. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about Guy Madden before very long and Green Fog, but the the Madden uh, Vertigo axis is, is there are a lot of other films along that path. But I also think of people like Christian Petzold. Um, Phoenix, did you all see Phoenix? I haven't seen Phoenix. No. Its debt to Vertigo is, is very considerable. Um, you know, there's a double here. Any doppelganger story has a lot of a debt to this film. It wasn't the first film to have doppelgangers in it, but it's a very significant one where someone becomes so obsessed that somebody is somebody else that they, in this case, um, mm. you know, try to mould them to their will. Um, you know, Scotty is hell-bent on, on moulding poor Judy uh, mm. to, to, re, to uh, reconstruct. I mean, there's even something a bit Frankensteinian about this as well, just reconstructing his object of desire uh, his very obscure object of desire. I think of Bunuel as well, and um, the film of that same name, that obscure object of desire, in which Bunuel mischievously had two actresses play the exact same character, just for shits and giggles. <laughs> <laughs> 
suppose you do. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a nice parallel with obvious homage with uh, Dress to Kill, Brian De Palma's, yeah. especially yes. with the, the museum sequence looking at the painting, which I think he does extremely well. I must say. Yeah. Well, yeah, De Palma is, was the American Hitchcock, as Argento was the Italian Hitchcock, as Chabrol was the French. And, and you know, all the oh, things. I love that, them all. Yeah, I love them all too. And, <laughs> and all those things that people consider Hitchcockian, you know, they almost find their zenith in this film. Mm. And especially, as you mentioned a few times there, with respect to just the perversity. And Hitchcock was famously a quite perverse character, oh, yeah, a bully and a tyrant, and just a mean prankster famous mm. for doing cruel things to his cast um not just within the films but just uh in downtime yes and uh yeah it's, it's just something about that sensibility permeates this film throughout and um you know it's it's ultimately by the time you get to the film's closure which is yeah it's just an extremely cruel ending it's a yeah. really cruel film mm-hmm. mm. It's a it's a nasty film. What I like about it also is that it's um, it's a man playing God film by stealth, which I have a particular interest in, having written the book on the fly and now doing another on the Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> and this film is very much that he may not be actually building her from uh, a genetic basis or from body parts, but he is. He takes another woman and tries to reconstruct her in another image, yeah, Mm. which I think is incredibly powerful to see that played out because it's by then, by this time, by 1960, this has been played out numerous times in cinema and literature from a scientific angle. So he just brings it from a a social, just Mm. a normal guy and how a normal guy is doing that, not necessarily a mad scientist. Is it like... Vertigo, for me, it's not my favourite Hitchcock film. I do really enjoy it, but of, you know, the amazing films that Hitchcock has given us, I think probably Rebecca would be my, my all-time favourite. The, the Pretty good that, one. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but the thing that stands out for me with Vertigo more so than, you know, the story and the perverseness, because we see that a lot with Hitchcock, is just... The how stylistic this film is. Like it, it feels, I'm I'm not gonna be that person that goes, oh, it holds up for its time. But it feels fresh. Like it just it feels oh. so fresh. But like he manages any, to do that. Any time that I I have gone back and revisited Vertigo, it just it has this constant freshness about it. And visually, it's absolutely it just takes my breath away every time. Like that. Like I said before, Edith Head with her costuming, the Technicolor. Like it is incredible in that sense. I think that it's sold so much by um, our amazing theme music mm. that mm. Um, we play every week and I think that that cannot be underplayed how much of a role that plays in this oh, film. absolutely. Um, in selling every moment, every emotional sting, every mm-hmm. change, um, something like when you, you see the revelation of the, the florist shop and it's like this, it's almost like the flowers have just sprung from the earth immediately in front of your eyes and the music, the way it unfolds mm-hmm. is, you know, because he is becoming completely and utterly besotted in this really revolting way. But um, Bernard Herrmann, I think you look at, you see a lot of Hitchcock's films and we talk a lot about Hitchcock, about how brilliant he is, and he is absolutely brilliant. Mm. That's correct. But you see the Hitchcock films after Herrmann and Hitchcock had parted ways, which is too 
big egos, big male egos coming up against each other and they just couldn't work together anymore and his films do lose a certain edge to them. Yeah, that score is very important. Um, So Vertigo, which is our intro music every week, is readily available to buy on DVD and Blu-ray and it is a masterpiece, so I highly recommend it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We are going to move on to The Green Fog. Um, so in an inventive tribute to San Francisco, Guy Madden and Evan and Galen Johnson riff on Hitchcock's vertigo with a kaleidoscope collage of found media. The result is what Madden calls a parallel universe version of Vertigo, where the dialogue scenes play out surreally in silent gesture, a sad Chuck Norris stands in for Jimmy Stewart's forlorn Scotty, and the Golden Gate Bridge appears um, bathed in unsettling green light. Uh, The Green Fog screened at MIFF last year. We did talk about it briefly then, but I think it's worth going into some more detail with the Green Fog scene as we've just come off the back of Vertigo. So, Cerise... Tell us about The Green Fog. Uh, well, look, uh, this is the sort of film that Guy Madden uh, could only have made. Yes, he had uh, helpers as regular collaborators these days, the Johnson brothers, but this is a Madden film through and through. There is, there is no greater or more perverse archaeologist of film's history and all of its possible histories. Uh, a little, little bit of backstory, but Madden's been making films for a long time that simulate not so much films of bygone eras, but films that were never made in those bygone eras with simulated degradation as if to suggest these films have been lying, rotting around somewhere for a very long time and, and have gathered all the detritus of the passage of time to make them have continuity lapses and all sorts of just damage to the image and superly heavy grain and all, all manner of distortions. Um, in more recent times, he, he was a resident at the Centre Pompidou in Paris where he conducted a series of what he called séances, where with the help of various uh, very interesting personnel, he um, exhumed many lost films or recreated many lost films from scratch in little vignettes and then put them out onto the internet. Um, and some of those got then packaged into the Forbidden Room, which screened at MIF a few years ago. And that, that was full of ectoplasmic uh, reimaginings of, of films that were lost or, in fact, never made, say, films made by people like Jean Vigo, who died too young to realise unfinished scripts and all, all sorts of amazing stuff. And here in The Green Fog, he's taken a film instead that we all know extremely well, one of the canonical titles of cinema, and reimagined it using footage from any number of other films set and shot in San Francisco and TV as well. Films also from the canon, um, some classic noirs like uh, Bogart and Dark Passage, and then also some rather uh, lesser titles, really schlocky, wonderful stuff, but also just TV when people like Rock Hudson are a bit... Uh, slumming it and in Macmillan and Wife. It looks mm. pretty ordinary, but it's funny how often Rock Hudson in this film becomes a, a, a surveillor of other goings <laughs> on within it. I uh, think that series went for about five years. Yeah, really? Yeah, it yes. doesn't look too promising. But then again, so much mischief is had with all of the imagery in this film that it's hard to tell what was ever a so-called quality production and what not. And poor old Chuck Norris, who, I mean, I've never had any real... <laughs> any I real affection this. towards but he somehow gets trapped in this sort of um, mise on a beam of his own reflection just, <laughs> yeah. just falls 
I mean, there's an awful lot of flirtation going on through just uh, mischief with montage in this film, sequences, uh, especially dialogue sequences, where all the dialogue, except perhaps one little grunt or something like that, is, is removed, <laughs> and it just becomes all of these suddenly overly significant glances back and forth and little judders, and it's hysterically funny. It has, sort of has a cumulative effect, I <laughs> yes. find. Yeah. The first few times you see it, you go, what's... Oh, I'm not quite sure what's going Yeah, it definitely, uh, I think that the way that he plays with dialogue and the expectation of somebody to speak yeah. grows as the film goes. Yeah, and yeah. T- initially, I found it incredibly frustrating, but then I found it really funny as it kind yeah. of progressed. Well, it suddenly everyone just seems to be flirting with everyone yeah, else, no. <laughs> but also in a quite despairing manner as music played by the Cronus Quartet evokes Bernard mm. Herrmann with all of that sinister violin, you know, dissonant uh, violin playing. But it's original and music It is original well. music yeah, before, yeah. Uh, con- um, composed by somebody else whose name escapes me right now. But apparently when this film premiered, uh, the Cronus Quartet were there to perform it live because Madden's been working in an expanded cinema realm for a long time recently too and often including live narration or live musical performances to screenings of his films. And I think it really bears noting that this was a film commissioned by the San Francisco Film Society to celebrate, I think, the 60th anniversary of the San Francisco Film Society, uh, a festival rather, who put it to him as festivals do or uh, other institutions do time to time, Guy, will you not make us a, a film to celebrate the something anniversary of our estimable festival or, or just the history of <laughs> cinema itself like uh, when the I think it was the Toronto International Film Festival on at the Millennium said Guy and as with so many other Canadian auteurs like Cronenberg as well Guy won't you make us a film to just somehow sum up cinema and in five minutes uh, length runtime he, he made The Heart of the World I think one of the greatest short films of all time a biblical epic via Soviet montage compacted into five to ten minutes of just mania and bizarre love triangles galore and blasphemy aplenty um, yeah you know Madden give Hitchcock a run for perversity any day of the week um, like Hitchcock um, an ostensibly straight man but as queer as they come and, uh, <laughs> and that queer sensibility is all throughout the green fog there's just so much queerness where I think probably none was intended in original Mm. filmmakers' work that's just been plundered for such joyous effect in this film and I I just adored this. (laughs) Yes, I adored it as well. It's interesting seeing this off the back of something like The Clock which is, um, you know, a similar, uh, well, similar, same, same but different piece of um, assemblage and I think these pieces play out to people who enjoy cinema um, probably to the, the most rather than just a casual cinema watcher, nerds. shall we say. Yeah, cinema nerds. nerds. Yeah. nerds. Yeah. But also <laughs> they've really it's a time where this sort of um, artwork really has hit its stride because now there is so much to choose from. Um, and cinema is still a relatively young art form, but now um, there's just such bo- a body of, of works to choose from uh, that there's it's ripe for the picking and something like this is um, has a lot to choose from, especially with San Francisco as the, the backdrop and all of the footage included is from films that feature San Francisco as um, a character, assi- essentially. Um, uh, there's still so much for it to do. 
And San, San Francisco looks so beautiful on screen. I think it's interesting because uh, a lot of the films have, uh, say, the car films, like a gangster film with the the rear projection in the back window. San Francisco always has the, the background disappearing and then coming back again because they're going over the hills oh, all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this idea of um, the Golden Gate Bridge obviously plays out so, so much in this. But his decision to hit various very specific points in uh, vertigo I thought was wonderful like the roof chase that just kept on (laughs) all these roof chase scenes and then even in a florist and then in a museum and people looking at portraiture um, and and I just, it, it just was stunning for me to see because I just did a lot of work on a Lana Turner film called Portrait in Black um, with a friend of ours called Lee Gambon, a commentary. And that film is very heavily influenced by San Francisco. It's set in there. So one of the, I think it was even the second dialogue non-dialogue scene where they cut out the the actual sequences of dialogue was John Saxon and uh, another man Richard Basehart having an altercation in a room and that was from Portrait in Black uh, and it it recurred at one scene, I think, uh, Rock Hudson in Macmillan and Wife was watching the final scene of Portrait in Black with Sandra Dee on the on the screen. At one stage, wasn't he watching, which was the band that Justin Timberlake's in? NSYNC. It was, NSYNC. It was NSYNC. Yeah. It took me a little while. To, I was like, is that yeah, NSYNC? Which boy band? And then I thought... If Stewie was still in Melbourne, he'd be playing NSYNC this week if he was angry. <laughs> but contextually, it was yeah. perfect. They it were was, in amongst the Redwood forests. So everything referenced, but the sense of humour is really, really, really strong mm. here. So we've got, um, for example, uh, it opens on Rock Hudson eating a sandwich and it's 70s Rock Hudson. 70s Rock Hudson is very different to 50s and 60s Rock yes, Hudson. Yes. Um, and, yeah, I, I th- feel that these pieces, this is ultimately, and something like the clockwork like this as well, they're, they're ultimately pieces around cinema aesthetic and they're really a celebration and, and also a way of highlighting how much um, the aesthetic of cinema Uh, adds to the experience of cinema. I felt like, um, so we've looked at the clock really recently and we looked at Terra Nullius last year. Um, I I think with like Terra Nullius and the clock, you could come in not knowing any source material and still getting really great enjoyment from it. I feel with the green fog that you would have to be very familiar with the source material. I don't know. What do you think so? I yeah, don't know. I do. I do. I think I, that I it feel works it, on so many levels. Really? See, I feel mm. if I wasn't familiar with Vertigo, I would come away from that just being like, what the fuck, and feeling quite <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> you know? well, I definitely think it would help yep. to have seen Vertigo mm. at least once in your yes. lifetime. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I can only surmise because mm. I've seen Vertigo quite a few times yeah. over the years. I've returned to it at regular intervals. Yeah, um, it's, hard, it's hard to step away from yeah, it to it make was, that judgment call. Yeah. It, was, it was interesting to watch, ver- to revisit Vertigo and then watching The Green Fog the night after. And I, I felt that I, I really got a lot from it because I had that viewing experience. And I was thinking, if I didn't have that viewing experience, but I'd still be getting so much from this. And initially with The Green Fog, I did find 
it incredibly frustrating. Um, but as it progressed, I found it, you know, really comical and joyous, um, the, particularly just the, the quick editing and the dialogue. And when someone goes to open their mouth, nothing coming out of it. And I was just... That but, was that was intriguing. Like I, that was it. So I, I enjoyed intriguing. that as it as it went on, yeah. you know. But to be at, at the beginning of it, I found that really difficult yeah. to deal with. As a, as Cerise has already mentioned, what it, unin, or unintentionally or intentionally, I, I don't know whether they realised this was going to happen until they actually did it. It creates a scene of flirtation. It's amazing yeah. how you take out and you just have an 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 opening gesture with the closing gesture and maybe a breath and the dialogue cut out that makes it like people are flirting. Exactly, which just is that kind of long yeah. looking at each other. And a lot of these scenes are things like father and daughters <laughs> talking to each other and they're like kind of giving each other the eye. And yeah. Breathiness. But <laughs> I, I really I really love this kind of thing that we're seeing a lot of, like, you know, in the past year we've looked at two things that, that uh, this kind of mashup of cinema and I think it's incredible that we're doing this and I think that we can take an iconic film like Vertigo and get all these this archival footage and mash it up and remake this film. I, I love that. I think it's a really beautiful thing. I even think Hitchcock would have been quite tickled by I this. I think so yeah. as well. Too. Oh, for sure, definitely. So if you are interested in seeing the green fog, not the green frog. Off, <laughs> off, yeah, which it, I, I, <laughs> I do recommend seeing off the back of Vertigo. Uh, it is streaming on Amazon Prime at the moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Um, before we get into our final film for the night, I just wanted to mention that at the moment at Triple R, it is April Amnesty. So if you didn't uh, sign up as a Triple R member during uh, Radiothon, now is a really good time. There's lots of prizes going on. We are all volunteers. We rely on you guys to subscribe to Triple R. It keeps us going. It keeps us thriving. Um, so what are some of the prizes we've got going for April Amnesty? I think the most relevant for our listeners is the MIF Mini Pass um, for the 2019 festival. So that gives one person uh, a choice of any 10 festival sessions plus three bonus weekday sessions before 5pm at such a great value deal. And you can go there wearing your Smart Alec Hatter's felt fedora, <laughs> block shaped and trimmed for your wearing pleasure. I think that's an essential Keep the head warm while you're standing in those lines to get into the films. And then you might want to do something like go to Cookie and you've got a voucher for $50, two-course banquet each for four people, total value of $200. That's three of them. There's literally a whole wall Yeah, we have a wall in front of us. There are so many amazing prizes you can uh, get from subscribing to Triple R through April Amnesty. If you want to go and explore those a little further, go to triplerr.org.au um, or you can give us a call on 93881027 to see what else we've got, you know, for April Amnesty. So our final film for this evening is Jonah Hill's directorial debut, Mid-90s. Um, Mid-90s follows Stevie, who is played by Sonny Suljic. Some of you will remember him from uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. 
So uh, he plays a 13-year-old in 90s-era LA who spends his summer navigating between his troubled home life and a group of new friends that he meets at the Motor Avenue skate shop. A skate shop sorry. It's here that he discovers that skateboarding is his passion. So this coming-of-age film features an incredible soundtrack, which we've played a couple of songs off already tonight, and also an impressive cast of professional skaters such as Narkel Smith and Olan Pranat. Um... I think I'll kick off mid-90s this evening. Go for it, Sal. As I am a, a child of the mid-90s. You are. It's uh, your time. Cerise and I, oh, I don't know, we were lying on pub floors or something at that time. <laughs> Still Possibly. are, Emma. Still are, <laughs> after the show. Um, gee, this film really took my breath away. It, I found it incredibly beautiful, moving, you know, one of those things that reminds me of why I, I love cinema so much. It wasn't steeped in nostalgia. I expected it to be. I expected going into this. And there were key things when the film first started, like um, Sonny Chilgic's character was wearing things like a Ren and Stimpy top. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did that. So it's going to be this huge nostalgia fest. But it wasn't. It was just this incredibly beautifully crafted, heartfelt film about one thing that I love seeing in cinema, which is subcultures. Um, I think that subcultures are particularly, you know, for people that are teenagers, are big things of connection that perhaps last throughout their life, you know, which, you know, I have felt and I still feel. Um, And this really authentically captured that. And I don't necessarily like saying that something authentically captures something in a film because films don't have to be authentic, you know. It's fine. But um, this was really... I think beautiful in that way. It also felt like a 90s indie film mm. in so many ways. There was even a cameo by Harmony Korine in one small point. I know. <laughs> I noticed that as well. How interesting. It just, yeah, it felt like, you know, kids in a much more toned down way. But it, it was, it really felt like that kind of where we had this, you know, onslaught of this 90s in indie cinema coming up. It felt like that kind of film and it I think was just really incredible. I think Jonah Hill has done amazing things with this. I was a fan of him beforehand and I feel like I've come away from this feeling like an even bigger fan of him. Uh, He's just... I I saw an interview with him I was looking at today where he said that he didn't want to have this film steeped in too much nostalgia porn or too much skateboard porn. And I think that he has really successfully done that. But he's also really captured the important elements of that where we look at things like the the importance of VHS and film, um, you know, home video when it came to skateboarding and the rise of that subculture and how it led to such things like, you know, Jackass, etc., etc. <laughs> you know, Big Brother magazine. It's in. It's an important subculture that had been going on a long time before the mid '90s. But he's chosen to focus on this specific time, and yeah, it was just really incredible. I think. Yeah, it's interesting with Jonah Hill. There's something. I think especially people who have uh, watched Jonah Hill maybe from a certain time with his, all his work with Judd Apatow that will come to this film with maybe an expectation. Uh, for example, my husband Steve, when I told him about it, he was like, oh, so it's not like... He, I think he was expecting this kind of dude bro comedy. Um, Which I feel like I would have been okay with. I really like Jonah Hill's dude bro comedy. I have no... Well, pro- I have no... Pro- you know, super bad part two, Fantastic. you know, with McLovin and all of those. You know, I really enjoyed those films. I enjoyed 
what he did in them as well. But it's been intriguing to see the way that Jonah Hill's career has moved forward or, you know, not necessarily got better but has changed with Jonah Hill. And Jonah Hill himself has actually physically changed, which is really bizarre. Um And he always says that he wanted to be a director. And I think that the amazing thing, a writer-director, because he did write this film as well, uh, in seeing this film you can see how that is his perfect fit. He just seemed like this was a hand-to-glove directorial debut for me. Mm. Um, It's, you know, as you were describing, Sally, this idea of... uh, I've I've read of people... um, complaining that it's not enough about the skateboarding culture or not enough about or it's all it's all about the nostalgia of the 90s and I agree with you I don't think it goes heavy-handed into either and I think the importance of what he's trying to focus on here is I think with any anyone that falls into subcultures when they're in their teens is finding a tribe yeah, you know, it's a coming it's, of age. It's film. not That's necessarily it is, about yeah. yeah. I just listen, you know, I skate or I listen to punk or blah blah blah. It's about that connection with tribe, and this is what this film focuses on. Yeah, and that's really important. You know, the, the, I think it, at its heart, it's about coming of age. So, it's uh, all the other stuff is really ornamental, but it creates a lovely film experience. Well, I sense that Jonah Hill's found a new tribe as an adult. The last film I saw him in was. Gus Van Sant's Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far On Foot. I believe the lead in this, too, uh, was in that little sunny. Maybe his, his surname's pronounced Sulich. Looks Slavic to me. I'm going to say Sulich. I'm going to take, take your word over mine on this, yes. Cerise, yeah, yeah. to be honest. Wasn't he in mm. Killing of a Sacred yes. Yes, yes, he was. He's a creepy kid, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, they're, they're all creepy in that film. <laughs> it's a Yorgos Lanthimos film. What People a movie. are creepy. What a movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, I got a real Van Sant vibe from this. And he made a really great film about skater kids, I don't know, it was 10 or so years ago, Paranoid Park. Yes. Did, yeah, you saw that? Yep. I was put in mind of that film mm-hmm. quite a lot in, in this. It's, and, um, yes, this was nostalgic without being cloying in the slightest. It very much uh, evoked that period for me. And it wasn't um, only because people wore certain T-shirts. It just really it felt... Uh, it felt authentic, but in quite a raw way. And part mm. of it might might just be attributed to this really intriguing decision to film it in a very square aspect ratio, for mm. which there was a, a an advisory note put up by Cinema Nova at the session I saw last night, which I think they took upon themselves to put yes, up there. Yes, I really? noticed that they put yeah. that up uh, before Hereditary as well. Ah, okay. Yeah, at Cinema yeah. Nova when I saw that. And thing. I'm going to presume mm. that's because they've had complaints in the past when they've yep. screened things with unorthodox aspect mm. ratios. Um so that, that, that happened. I thought that was intriguing. And then I, you know, without hopefully going into any spoiler territory, but I, I did wonder if this was, in fact, to refer to perhaps the aspect ratio as um, employed by a quite naive filmmaker, not Jonah Hill, but a filmmaker within this film, because one of the characters known mm-hmm. as Fourth Grade, Fourth grade. in this is a, a rather simple fellow who is the he's the one who's documenting all his skater buddies' tricks um, and their slapstick. And uh, some of that slapstick, and in fact, quite a lot of um, there's quite a physical, visceral dimension to this film, where um, Stevie's 
pratfalls. I, I really felt them, and also the beatings he gets at the hand of his bully brother, uh, played by Lucas Hedges, who seems to be a bit of a go-to at the moment for troubled teens, like as in Boy Erased recently. It took me a little while to realise that that was him because mm. he's not a very quite different as, character. Yeah, not quite as wholesome mm. as he would usually. No, play. he's just a shit. He's a nasty little piece of work. But mm. also the beatings that Stevie gives himself. Yeah, well that that was really visceral mm. and, and quite distressing. Um, but there's this the tribe he finds those characters are all wonderfully drawn i suspect they're some non-professional actors who really aren't exactly stretching as performers i mean this is they're, they're being quite true to themselves and clearly two of them in particular have some serious skating prowess so i'm thinking they're skaters first and in this case actors very much second but they're that that brings the authenticity that Mm. Uh, you know, money and big casting cannot buy. Well, I know that Neil, uh, uh, sorry, Narkar Smith, who played uh, Ray, is, you know, a very well-renowned professional skater. And Olan Perret, who played one of my favourite character <laughs> names ever, fuck shit. He's <laughs> 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 also a professional skater. I um, had looked at, you know, some interviews with uh, Jonah Hill and the cast when they were at TIFF. And him talking about Olan, who plays fuck shit. Um, he Sorry, plays who? Fuck shit. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get that tattooed on my knuckles. <laughs> um, That's great. One two punch. With he that. was just so charismatic that he completely forgot to audition him. He was just like, okay, this is the guy. And then A24, who was the distribution company, said, did you audition him? He's like, oh. No, I forgot to do that, but I think that he'll be okay. It's incredible. <laughs> he is, like, just the the cast in this film is so beautiful. Incredible rapport. This is mm. the thing that they, they managed to they managed to bring out. I, I mean, A24, the company you mentioned that uh, they've... They're, do interesting things. We did hi- we did High Life last week, which is the Claire Denis film, which A24 um, have distributed as well. And um, they also did Lady Bird. So Lady Bird's sort of, you know, another coming-of-age film lots. that's They've been really like well acclaimed. Hereditary, Lean on Pete, lots of things that we've sort of covered lately, I Yeah, feel. yeah. Mm. Interesting. Some interesting, edgier, not edgelord, edgier <laughs> cinema. And um, I think that this, for me, uh, even uh, felt more satisfying to me than even Lady Bird. And I know that Lady Bird has been exonerated by, you know, so many people love this film. Lady Bird was it, like, f- for me enjoyable but looking at mid 90s this really touched my there was heart. something yeah I, I i squeezed out a couple of tears you know, there and i definitely this. was not a skater in the mid 90s or in la but no, there was something i just had nothing so beautiful personally about this film. personally to bring to this film mm. and it really touched me um i found that it was it had presented some really challenging stuff on screen um uh his sexual awakening was a really interesting yep. sequence i mean they were both minors but in the t- the, the sense of one was a minor at one minor end of the scale one and the other was at the major end of the scale. Smaller, you know. <laughs> yes. like. um, but it was very real. It felt very, very real. His direction, I got completely absorbed in it and forgot at times 
that I was meant to be reviewing it, which is a good experience because mm. uh, I, I suddenly went, oh, my God, this is a really interesting shot. What he's doing here is fascinating. And and there was a shot that he came back to constantly through the film, which is where they were skating down the middle of the road, which I thought was really quite spectacular. Yep. Yeah, really beautiful. So if you are interested in seeing mid-90s, it is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. On tonight's show, we discussed mid-90s, which is screening at Cinema Nova. We also looked at Hitchcock's Vertigo, which is available on DVD and Blu-ray. And we talked about The Green Fog, which is Guy um, Madden's interpretation of Vertigo, which is streaming on Amazon Prime. Next week in The Cave, we will be discussing Transit, uh, Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, and Monty Python's The Life of Brian, which is a nice little time. 40th anniversary, the 40th isn't anniversary. it? 40th anniversary. Yes, yes. Yep. There's a yep. screening coming up. So I'm hoping it. that yes. my dad listens to that one. <laughs> <laughs> so you can subscribe to Plato's Cave on our podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.